Guardian. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. I'm Alex Spring, but today you'll be hearing from our film critic, Luke Buckmaster, and a panel of Australian film producers. We've just put on our first Guardian Australia Film Club event at Sydney's Palace Verona Cinema. The idea for Film Club grew out of Luke's regular column, rewatching classic Australian films. And so every couple of months, we'll be hosting a screening of a classic Aussie film in a major capital city, along with a discussion with film industry folk about a topic relating to that film. Today's screening was David Michaud's 2010 Aussie classic, Animal Kingdom, about a Melbourne gangland family. It was the director's first feature film, so we're using Animal Kingdom as a springboard for conversations around making films in Australia. To discuss making a debut film in Australia, Luke was joined by Animal Kingdom producer Liz Watts, Kath Shelper, who most recently produced Reuben Guthrie, and Tristan Roche-Turner, who produced the zombie horror Wormwood. The trio had some really interesting things to say about making debut films in Australia. Liz talked about the end of the theatrical distribution window. Cass talked about how boring it can be on set sometimes. And Tristan spoke about whether it was a good thing or not that Wormwood actually became one of the most pirated films in the world. We enjoyed the discussion so much, we thought we'd share it with everyone as a special episode of the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. Let us know what you think about the discussion on Twitter at GDN Culture or on Facebook Guardian Australia Culture and use the hashtag Guardian Film Club. Next month, we'll have another special film club podcast episode when we screen Kenny in Melbourne on the 23rd of August and talk about making comedy films in Australia. If you'd like to come along and be part of the discussion, click on the link on this page for tickets. Now, here's Luke introducing the live talk. Hi, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome to the launch of Guardian Australia's Film Club. So our first, uh, first screening um, and first discussion panel. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Luke Buckmaster, the film critic for The Guardian Australia. And um, it's all very, uh, very, very exciting to, to have you here. There'll be two separate uh, parts of this event, I guess. And uh, one of them will be the screening of David Michaud's uh, first feature film, Animal Kingdom. Uh, and before that, we've got a panel discussion about uh, producing a first-time feature filmmaker's work. And to that end, allow me to introduce our three very special guests, three Australian film producers. Uh, Liz Watts uh, was one of the producers of Animal Kingdom. Uh, the producer. The producer, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Liz. Uh, Liz began uh, working in the film industry in the, in the 90s, producing a, a, a long list of films, as the or a producer for a long list of films, including Little Fish with Kate Blanchett, The Hunter uh, with Willem Dafoe, The Rover with Guy Pearce, another David Michaud movie, uh, and many others. Kath Shelper, uh, she's similarly produced a number of pedigree productions. Most recently, Reuben Guthrie, uh, and that's the first film of playwright come feature film director Brendan Cow, and it's uh, just arrived in cinemas, adapted from his acclaimed Belvoir Street uh, production. Her other films include Samson and Delilah, that spectacular film from uh, Warwick Thornton. Uh, we also have Tristan Roche-Turner. He co-wrote and co-produced with his brother Kia uh, an incredibly ambitious and incredibly colourful zombie splatter movie, Wormwood Road of the Dead, which went gangbusters uh, earlier this year in March. The film was a, a big hit with its target demographic and received, I think it's fair to say, the bittersweet 
distinction of becoming one of the world's most pirated movies. Uh, we have time for questions, as I said, towards the end. Uh, so uh, please put a couple in the memory bank. And if you'd like to, to tweet during the uh, discussion, use the hashtag Guardian Film Club. So if you wouldn't mind uh, putting your hands together to welcome our special three guests. When I, uh, when, I, when I talk to producers uh, about how they got started in the, in the film industry, some of them say they really doggedly determined to pursue a career uh, in filmmaking. Some say they, they fell into it. Um, and I'm just interested to, to start off by asking the three of you, we'll start with you, Liz, um, how, you, how you became uh, a part of the, the, the film industry. I um I I always was very interested in camera actually and visual the visual story side of storytelling and um used to work uh as a camera assistant and then was shooting stuff for some time but actually got really sick of lugging gear around I, I think it's like one of the baddest jobs ever and I always to this day I'm very favorable to the camera department on my films um and then I started working I sort of got more interested in being able to um, be a part of the development process and I became interested in script writing, I suppose, not as a writer but how it works and then I wanted to be involved in both the the before and then the after, which is the post-production and then, of course, the release. So I, I thought I'd move into production more um, and then I went and worked at a place called Film Australia that doesn't exist anymore uh, and did kids' television and documentaries primarily. How about you, Kath? Oh, I told these guys before it was bad luck. Um, I was... Um, I, I thought that I wanted to work in media and in the film industry and I moved into a share house in Melbourne with a woman who was a student at, um, at Swinburne Film School, the old VCA film school, and she asked me to work on her second-year film and to, you know, production manage slash produce it which I did, and then someone who was on the crew who was a professional working person said, oh, you're really good at this, you should keep doing it. And I just kind of went, oh, really? Okay. So I did, pretty much. <laughs> but I then uh, got an attachment on a film in Sydney and I moved up here and uh, I did an attachment with Susan McKinnon on a, a documentary drama called Eternity that Lawrence Johnston directed and Dion Beebe shot it and it was an amazing experience and that kind of got me very hooked. And then I also went and worked at Film Australia for a long time and which is where Liz and I met. And Liz production managed my first funded short film through the Australian Film Commission back in the day. And how about you, Tristan? I actually got dragged into it by my brother. He's uh, the director of Wormwood, Kia, and he has just always wanted to be a director for his whole life since he was about 12 years old. And he used to make short films and it just looked like a lot of fun. And I actually did a short film for my year 12 flop at school, did this like dodgy, shitty little ninja film, but it got heaps of laughs in the crowd. And so ever since then, I was just really hooked and just knew that I was going to do it with my brother and make films with him forever. So awesome. I think um, one of the big things that people associate with being a producer is, is raising funds or, or generating resources. And if we use the three uh, of each of your, your films, or one each, um, as a sort of discussion point around how you, you sort of put funds together. And Liz, we'll start off with um, Animal Kingdom. Is it, is it fair to say that this has followed um, 
funding this film followed a, a, a traditional sort of trajectory from script yeah. development in SW oh. to, to, to being funded by Screen Australia and, and Film Victoria. And can you just walk us through how that project is, is normal or different from the funding of others? Um, yeah, at, at the time I think it probably did, you know, this is, this is old, this film. <laughs> I mean, I've done three feature films since this film. So, but at the time I think we did follow a pretty traditional path. Um, and it was a really hard sell in terms of getting the sales agent on. But we we went through... David had actually developed it with Screen New South Wales a little bit um, and, went, and went through the Aurora workshop process. Um, and I wasn't attached to it then. And that was at about fourth draft. I came on and we probably did another four drafts. We actually got rejected, I remember, from Screen New South Wales when we went in for another draft um, money. And I'll... And I, I've, to this day, still have the report written on it and I know who wrote it. <laughs> um, but anyway, it doesn't matter. We ju it just made us more determined to make it, actually. And often, often those experiences do and you, get, you start to get a, a, a kind of feel that when the film's about to go and you, you gain momentum and there's interest. And Mad Men came on, they were great, they were very supportive and then Screen Australia... Screen New South Wales did invest, as did Film Victoria. The hardest part was actually to get an international sales agent, um, and we were we were in a position where we needed to do that, um, and that was actually quite a hard sell because it, even David had a fantastic short film called Crossbow, which is how I kind of connected with him because um, I saw it and just was blown away. I, I just thought it was such an impressive and audaciously. Um, you know, unique way of telling a story. Um, so that was that's a great, you know, tool to have up your belt as a first-time feature director and actually really necessary. Um, and luckily we had um, Charlotte Mickey, for some reason, just believed what I said about him. <laughs> it was lucky. But, yeah, it was quite traditional in a way, I think. Yes. Talking about um, getting knocked back, uh, Kath... Uh, Ruben oh, Guthrie. Actually, sorry, yeah. can I just add, sure. traditional but w David and I also put money in that film. Like we, we had to invest. So in I think more and more you there are ways of doing that as a producer and ways of kind of hopefully um, returning the money in a favourable position and that's what we certainly did do but we had to put in some money. So, um, In terms of re requesting or applying for money, uh, Ruben Guthrie was uh, knocked back uh, twice, I think, wasn't it, for production funding from Screen Australia, and you ultimately found uh, money for that film via a, uh, somewhat more of an unconventional means, at least for an Australian film. Kath, can you explain to us, you know, how you brokered a deal and, and uh, where some of the money for, for Ruben came from? Yeah, I I only became involved in Ruben Guthrie at the beginning of last year, um, and. Uh, uh, the the sort of history with Screen Australia happened before I became attached. Um, um, Brendan had sort of tried different variations of getting the film up, which hadn't worked, and um, and then he came to me and said, you know, will you do a sort of low budget production with just whatever money we can scrape together? And he's quite an influential. Um, uh, convincing sort of person so I was like oh okay I'll do it um, and so we in January last year we just decided we would shoot in August and we would just shoot with whatever money 
we'd managed to sort of scrape together by then. Um, so we did have – we had Screen New South Wales money. They were very supportive right from the beginning um, and they had always liked the project. Same with Madman. We had Madman uh, Entertainment were attached and they had been attached since um, the project was a, a play back, you know, in 2009. Um, so, you know, we did have some traditional forms of finance and then we just went and asked anyone for money, cap in hand. Will you give us money? Will you give us money? So we had, you know, a couple of private investors. We had um, some brand and sponsorship um, money, but more resources and, you know, things in kind and locations in kind and um, different things like that, which, which helped with the budget. And Brendan and I reinvested our fees. So we sort of, you know, patched it together like that, as well as with the the producer offset that was a big part of the the financing as well which was a completely different model to how we made Samson and Delilah we made Samson and Delilah with a very small budget but it was all um, public money so it was all money from Screen Australia and um, the ABC the Adelaide Film Festival Screen New South Wales so that was a much more traditional kind of way of financing a film in Australia in terms of your collaboration with um, Lexus, because uh, Reuben Guthrie's an ad man, makes ads for um, for that for that particular company. How did that work in terms of um, you know bang for buck from from convincing those guys to be part of the film? Did you have to give them a, a certain uh, running time or uh, show them a script, or how did that how did that work? Um, with all of the brands that were involved, um, they they were very um, they were very hands off and. They they sort of like the idea of supporting um, of supporting the arts basically and of supporting the film industry and supporting Brendan as as an artist and as a storyteller, and um, they I guess with Ruben Guthrie it's about a guy that works in advertising so from a creative point of view we wanted to have real brands because in the play all the brands that he was working on were all made up they're all like daggy names like you know a double wheat beer or something weird like that. And so for the film we decided that it would be more authentic and easier for us and cheaper for us to make the film if we had genuine brands. Um, so it was sort of an easy film to have, you know, that brand placement in the film. Um, and all of them were so great. They, None of them had any influence over the scripts. They didn't um, – I mean, of course, we were never going to write anything, you know – terribly derogatory about them or anything like that but um they 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 all sort of came to the party in the spirit of of the project and and a lot of it was just letting us you know use the cars or use an office to film in or um you know different things like that that allowed us to make the film sydney's a very expensive place to make a film in and a lot of the cooperation that we got was was the sort of cooperation that just made it easier to make a film in sydney Tristan, I think it's uh, fair to say that your style, at least at the early embryonic moments of the production, was a little bit more guerrilla. So you and your brother, correct me if I'm wrong, you and your brother said, we're going to make a film. We have, what, uh, 20 grand? We're going to put 20 grand in six months into it. That didn't exactly work out that way, did it? Well, very untraditional. Um, we sort of thought that, you know what, fuck, we could probably make a movie in six months, 20 grand. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. But it ended up being about four years to make the whole thing and it ended up costing about 160 grand in sort of cash up front. Um, when we started, 
I didn't even know what the traditional model of filmmaking was. I'd never seen a budget. I'd never seen a finance plan. I didn't, I didn't even know what they were. But what we were pretty good at was getting out there and just shooting short films because we'd shot a bunch of short films. We'd shot a bunch of music videos. And we sort of approached it as like, you know, we need about an hour and maybe 30 minutes worth or an hour and 20 minutes worth of footage. That's probably about 20 short films. We could just attack it like 20 short films every two like you know shoot one every two months and that's pretty pretty much how it went uh essentially yeah so so what was the the mistake in that planning process that you made so (laughs) obviously there was a miscalculation maths maths was never my strong point i actually (laughs) dropped maths in year 10 for biology so that probably had something to do with it biology was did you well though easy marks (laughs) easiest marks i ever got in terms of uh, on the question of, of sort of developing screenplays now, so we're going a bit sort of forward in the in the, in the process from from funding onwards, and I know that you've made uh, several films after Animal Kingdom list, but with the screening afterwards, I'm just particularly interested um, to to ask you a couple of questions about it. So, um, the the draft was uh, well, the script was extensively re- rewritten, um, and I believe that not a single word from the original uh, draft uh, actually resulted in the, the final version. What in, um, in the in the final script? Yeah. Did Michelle tell you that? Yeah. Ah. That's okay. is that not not accurate? I reckon an and and a thus <laughs> would have been in there. Yeah, I reckon. <laughs> I reckon scene numbers. Um. Well. No, sorry. Oh no no. Yeah. So uh, I'm just curious as to what, what. Okay. So what what guidance did you give him at Sucks? I know that you gave him quite um quite strong feedback about about the yeah, script. What was wrong with the original draft, and how did you change that into something that became Animal Kingdom? God, you're really going back, Luke. Um, I I think, um, look, I okay. How do I answer that? The, I I didn't love the script. I actually didn't love the script at all. And I turned David. I said, yeah, David, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I'm right for this film. You know, I'd made the Home Song Stories, which was like a Chinese, Mandarin, Cantonese, Australian. 1950s epic story before this film so I was like why do you want me to do it um and I knew it because I'd been in the same Aurora workshop um and with with a a filmmaker called Joel Anderson doing his script so I knew it was called Jay in those days um and then he and Beck Beck Smith was going to LA to work as an agent well she was just going to LA at that stage she wasn't an agent yet and um, he wanted a producer and they both approached me and I read it and and I liked it, I liked it, um, but I kind of wasn't totally convinced because I knew that was going to be so execution dependent. Um, it's, a, it's a big, unwieldy narrative in a way, the Animal Kingdom, it kind of, you know, goes off in a direction that you're not expecting and in the hands of someone that can't handle that like it's a big risk to take as a as someone that's about to put four five years of their life into it um so I turned him down anyway he said look just tell me what's wrong with it and I I look I can't remember exactly but um I I had I just said okay I'm just going to say my opinion and if you like what I'm saying then we should keep talking and um, he was really open to that and um, he kind of acknowledged stuff and what he wanted to do with it and where he wanted to take it. Um, and then I saw his short film Crossbow and I went, oh, actually, I think, ah, okay, I, I'm kind of getting his humour because Animal Kingdom actually is quite funny at times um, in, in a weird black humour way. 
and I kind of get him. And um, that I think we, we just kept on working and I just kept giving him feedback. Duncan Thompson was really great also to work with. And it's sort of that thing where you're working with a, a writer di- who's also directing and um, trying to provide as much environment of um, enthusiasm as well as criticism. And it's a delicate line you're negotiating as a producer the whole time because you don't want to be... The more you kind of push, people will pull away. So you sort of constantly... Anyway. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it, it was a it was a bit of a process, and we kind of I can't remember when Aurora when that first draft was done, but um, we probably had another couple of years of working on it. In terms of your uh, writing process, um, Tristan, because you actually you know you worked with your brother developing the screenplay from sort of woe to go. How did you guys co-write? Is it is it a matter of you know there butch is there butcher's paper for brainstorming? Is there a whiteboard? Do you sit down and take turns at the keyboard? How does that actually work? It's mostly um, just sitting around in a kitchen talking shit. That's that's pretty much it. Um, probably the biggest lesson that we learned, like making this first film, is that you actually need a script to go into production. <laughs> we, we shot a quarter of the film before we even had a script, and then we got through and we're like, oh, uh, we might actually need a little bit of story here. So we went away and um, yeah, just workshopped, and that's how we that's how we sort of roll. We just sit in the kitchen and talk through all the scenes, talk through what the characters are, what we specifically want their arcs to be, and then just attack a whiteboard. And then yeah, Kara will go away and actually do the writing, and then I'll sort of come back and read it, and we'll have big massive arguments about what should and what shouldn't be in it. But um, yeah, that was that was a pretty big lesson. You need a script to make a movie. Yeah. Putting your, um, your, I guess, the producer's hat on in that context. This, th- this hat? That. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Wormwood hat. Uh, were, there, were there bits where you, you wrote down on the script and you went, okay, we, we just can't do that, and you start shopping it away? Or were you guys absolutely determined that you had to do everything that you wrote? We actually probably got more and more audacious as we went along. Um, one of the bonuses of filming how we filmed was that we'd have a bit of time in between the actual shoots. And we sort of tried to make it a role that every time we shot a scene, the next scene that we shot had to be bigger and better and just more bold. Uh, So it got to the point where finally our final scene, we actually had like a full stunt crew, had a guy on set who we set his entire head on fire and apparently it was the first time that there'd been a full head burn in Australia in an Australian independent production. So yeah, it was pretty cool, yeah. (laughs) In, in terms of actually recruiting, uh, I guess casting actors, and, and there's a range of um, famous or non-famous actors depending on the, the films that you've, you've worked with collectively. Liz, over the years, um, what have you found to be some of the tricks of the trade in terms of securing great talent? You know, the rover from Robert Pattinson to any, any of your other films, Kate Blanchett, is it simply a matter of sending a good script to an agent or is there some insider's perspective that you can share with us this afternoon? Oh, that's hard. I think you've got to get on with the agents. They're a fact of life, I'm afraid. Um, um, Look, I think everything's different. I mean, definitely the work of that director um, primarily is often just the the easiest thing. So with... um, with Rowan Woods and Little Fish, um, obviously The Boys was a brilliant film. So Kate was was very keen to work with Rowan. So actually that was quite easy. Um, with David, with Crossbow, it was enough, 
I f- it was an it was it was a really great calling card for him and and to show that to guy um was was quite a good thing to be able to do and he you know guy makes his own decisions he's not he's in australia too so it's a little bit easier to reach him um and david had actually written most of those other roles well actually just the ben the ben role and the jackie role for those actors um and new ben sort of remotely uh from melbourne days i think so I think every film, Robert Pattinson, again, you know, came onto that film because of, and actually auditioned twice because of David. And, um, and sh- you know, it was good he auditioned. He should have auditioned too. Um, but it, it really depends. I think you, you end up sort of doing a lot of count intelligence on people and what they like and what they don't like and... Um, as much as possible, you're working within the agent system, but also trying to skirt around it as well. But I, d- I don't, I don't like sending scripts directly to stars. I, I've never done that, for instance. Um, I, it'd have to be a pretty weird position for me to do that. You, you mentioned Jackie Weaver's performance, which was obviously Oscar-nominated, and so he wrote that specifically for Jackie. How do you then communicate that to her? Because, I mean, imagine if, if you're a, a famous actor and, and someone says, hey, I wrote this part specifically for you, they might go, yeah, everyone says that. Uh, does everyone say that? Or how did you actually convince her that this is her character? Well, she, I mean, she, uh, she, she I think she just loved the idea of it, paying this sort of evil grandmother, you know. And, and um, I think she saw it as a really great thing to be able to do um, I was just talking before with someone in, in before this session and she was doing back-to-back tours around Australia and small theatrical productions and, in fact, was like in Rockhampton when we wanted her to do wardrobe tests and stuff like that. So I think for her it was a really great role and she saw that. She recognised it as something that's different and I, th- I would say that that's probably the biggest sell often to an actor is... To entice them is that, that it's something new that they may not have done before. For Robert Pattinson, obviously, it was working with the director of Animal Kingdom on something away from the Twilight kind of persona. So it was attractive. And for Jackie, similarly. Um, and the same for Ben, I think. And Kath, for Reuben Guthrie, were you involved in the casting element of that? Um, to what extent were you involved? And say you've got uh, Patty Patty Bramall who plays uh, Reuben. You're, you're casting a character who has been cast before uh, on stage several times. How, uh, do you know um, what the process was like in terms of assessing um, whether the previous actors could play them on screen? What the logic was for bringing you know Patty as one of them or him over somebody else who played them on stage? Um, no, I don't know what the history was of the previous cast. When, when Brendan came to me, the only person who was still attached was Abby Lee, um, who, um, plays Ruben's girlfriend. She, she'd sort of stuck with the project through, you know, every sort of machination, um, and, uh, I was, I was very involved with the casting um, Brendan and myself and Kirsty McGregor, who was the casting director that we worked with, we sort of did it together. And I I felt really strongly about Patrick for Ruben because he's because Ruben is potentially on on paper not a very likable guy, and 
And I think Patrick is one of those actors who can do comedy. He can be charming. He can. I just thought that he could pull off um, playing that character and still being someone that you could sort of go with on a journey for 90 minutes. Um, and then beyond him, so I checked out his availability with his agent in January for the, our, you know, dubious dates we'd set in August and he was available. So that was a good... <laughs> good start. <laughs> good start. So he was available and then we just cast everyone else around him. So then we just thought, you know, who's going to be good parents for him? Who's going to be a good friend to play opposite him? And... And uh, so it was a combination of different ideas that we had about how to put that family tree together, but also if they were available. <laughs> That's a, a pretty big thing. And I mean, when you're putting together a cast like that, um, that when it's, you know, a reasonable ensemble of known people, that's kind of a big factor is availability and, and you know, locking in those dates and making sure that, you know those three actors are going to be available on that day to shoot those scenes. So it's, you know, it's a bit pragmatism and a bit um, making sure they can work together as family or friend or workplace um, boss. Um, so it's just a bit of a jigsaw of putting it all together. Tristan, you cast a lot of your, your mates in the film, right? How do you actually convince people? And obviously going by some of the behind-the-scenes behind footage that I've watched, it looked like an incredibly fun, colourful set, a lot of things happening, a lot of splatter. Um, but how do you convince people to put in that much work? Because presumably it was hard work and give them um, nothing at least at that point in time. Lots of jelly beans. <laughs> That's what it is. You pretty much just got to keep the sugar intake up, keeps everyone happy, keeps them working really hard. But yeah, we were really lucky with our, with our cast. We've got a really dedicated um, cast that sort of stuck with us that includes the lovely Bianca Brady here who we put through some terrible conditions freezing on set terrible catering Kia's a monster to work with like he's he's terrible but yeah it's just generally just try to be really really nice to them and um yeah feed them lots and lots of sugar in the afternoons to keep that energy up did people at any time in the, the process go okay that's it i'm i'm out of here leaving you with a character definitely definitely <laughs> and yeah. how did you how did you navigate around that if if they were a character in the film and suddenly they're, they're not just killed them off. Pretty much kill them off, yeah. That's, we had to do that a couple of times, actually, just write them out and, yeah, it, it works. If we can uh, talk a, a little bit about uh, actually on the set and how you support first-time filmmakers. I'm wondering, um, Liz, is there a certain um, ethos that you, you bring to being able to care for somebody who's going through um, quite a potentially stressful, ex <laughs> yeah, stressful experience? Yeah. Um, I tend to be on set most, most days, every day. Um, pretty much, and that's I, I'm, you know, every producer's sort of different, I think. Um, but particularly with um, first-time filmmakers, I actually like it. I actually like being there and seeing what's happening. Um, and you know, with Animal Kingdom, David was very receptive to me being there and having feedback. Um, I guess it's it's having that support and being able to look ahead because that's what as a producer you're doing constantly is actually looking you know what's happening next week what's happening next month when we're going to release it what that what we're doing now is how is that going to impact that um whereas the director is much more in the moment and has to be in the moment so my work is to provide that sort of arena that makes everything happen so that they can be in the moment you know 
Um, so yeah, every every film is slightly different. Um, with Kate Shortland, um, we were shooting in Germany, and I wasn't there the whole time. Um, and Tony Krauts, I was on Dead Europe. I was, went on the whole journey through Europe. We shot in four countries or something, and I was there morning, noon, and night. <laughs> so everything is different, but it is about sort of yeah, supporting the director to be able to focus really. I was really surprised when I talked to David the other week and he said that because Animal Kingdom is such an extraordinarily assured debut film which seems so accomplished, so confident and he said that he on the set was completely flipping out. In the editing room he said he was chronically um, He was, he was in therapy quite a lot, yeah. Do, so do you feel a responsibility to, For that? to look no. after them? Oh, <laughs> it's not my fault he was like that. Um... <laughs> Well, yeah, I do. I have a really good relationship with David and we've done another film together and I'll do another one, I hope, with him. Well, we're working on another one. Um, but, y- yeah, you do... You, I want... You, you're trying to just enable someone to do the very best work that they can. Um, the trauma and everything that goes along with that is... Uh, you know, I'm not going to say it's always the case because it's not... Um, it really just depends on the personality. Kath, what's been your experiences over the years with supporting um, actually on-set uh, directors uh, from you know Reuben Guthrie to Samson and Delilah? Do you have any memorable experiences of somebody freaking out or uh, or, or going or great guns? Or freaking out yourself. <laughs> um, oh, look, it's different. Um, it's different for different people, um, uh, and it, and it's. It's, it's different for what that person thinks they need and for what I think they need. Um, and I guess that's the job of the producer is to be able to keep an eye on that, that overall picture and, um, and to be able to, to judge how everything, every decision is sort of slotting into that overall plan. Um, and a lot of the time I find that pre-production and post-production uh, – more important or just as important as the shoot um that that's where a lot of the decisions get get made and where a lot of the you know particularly in pre-production a lot of the the planning and uh, a lot of the decisions get made there rather than on the shoot and if you if you're working with a confident director then i mean i i actually don't like being on set i find it quite boring unless i've got a job to do um, so I try not to be there too much if I'm working with someone who's, you know, who's fine to just be there doing their thing and I'm watching rushes every day and seeing what's coming in. And, I mean, I'll go once a day just to pop in and say hi and eat some catering unless it's bad catering. Um, but I don't really like hanging around unless it's a particular scene that I want to see being shot or there's something that I'm worried about. Except with Samson and Delilah... Um, Warwick and I had made a short film called Nana as a sort of a bit of a test case for how we were going to make Samson and Delilah and Warwick remembers things visually but not necessarily words on a page and once he's written a script he doesn't read it again um, so when he when we'd shot Nana we got into the edit suite and I'm like where's the shot with the seven dogs? And he's like, what seven dogs? I'm like, in scene one, it says that she looks at the seven dogs. Oh, shit. Oh, I forgot about that bit. Um, And it was really hard to edit that film together because there were so many bits missing. So on Samson and Delilah, because it was such a 
um, such an in intricately um, written script, I just knew that if we didn't get every single detail, particularly with the lack of dialogue, that it, it would be really hard to make it work in the edit. So I said to him, I'm going to stand on set every single day and make sure you shoot every single thing that's in the script. And so that's what I ended up doing. I was on set. I, I actually became the continuity person. We didn't have a continuity person. Um, and we worked out this little system where some of the people on set couldn't read English or, or couldn't read. So uh, when we would go to shoot a scene, I would... All the crew would gather around me, which was only about 10 people, and I would read the scene out loud to everyone and then Warwick would talk through how it was going to be plotted and, you know, how it was going to be shot and then we'd shoot it. And we did that through the whole entire film. And that was fun because I had a job and I had something to do. But otherwise it's so boring being on set. It really is. On the, on the subject of having something to, to do, Tristan... Um your hands-on approach to producing Wormwood actually resulted in uh, you building a car or a certain kind of car. And I don't want to say, actually, can you explain what that car is and how you made it? Jumped on eBay, bought a Toyota Hilux, bright yellow, for about 1700 bucks, and then just parked it at the front of my brother's place in Roselle, which is, I don't know if you guys have been in the West, but it's, you know, it's very, very small streets there. We just sat it out the front of his house for about, I reckon, a good two months. And... I'd just get uh, my tradie mates to come over, you know, every afternoon and we'd just attack it with drills and grinders, sending sparks everywhere and it just, it looked crazy. Built this basic, it's like a, uh, a zombie killing machine, so it's got like spikes on the front, it's got bars on the windows, we even ended up putting like a big harpoon on the, on the, on the, on the roof. And yeah, we got some pretty funny looks from neighbours, yeah, yeah. What's the process around actually uh, doing that uh, legally? Uh, <laughs> It, it does, have, does the car still work? Uh, can, can you, are you allowed to drive it? Are there actually laws around that? I, I, I don't know. know. I'm pretty sure it's legal, right? <laughs> right. Nah, it's definitely unregistered. Uh, definitely can't drive it anywhere and it hasn't been registered for about two months. So every time we shot, we'd basically stick it on the back of a flatbed and get it delivered to set. The first scene we ever shot, it was actually registered and I designed it specifically so you could take all of the trappings off and pile it into the tray in the back, but it ended up looking like something out of the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> we actually drove it all the way to Newcastle and we didn't get pulled over. We got some funny looks from cops, but we didn't actually get pulled over. It's an amazing car. Um, uh, in terms of the way that the Wormwood was received, I'm sort of moving on to a conversation more broadly about a film's reception. Um, as we mentioned before, as I mentioned before, Wormwood was uh, pirated fairly extensively. I think it's Ooh, yeah. What Was there a process around dealing with that? How did you guys actually deal with that? Hey, who was your distributor on that? Uh, we had Studio Canal in Australia and the UK. Um, and I don't know how uh, much you guys know about Australian release, but there's a thing called The Window. So if you're going to have a theatrical release, you have to wait a little while until it comes out on DVD and video on demand. In America, the distributor that we had is a little bit more progressive uh, and they wanted to go for a theatrical day and date release with video on demand. So... We were lucky enough to get same day and date release for theatrical for Australia and uh, US, but unfortunately the US made it available uh, online in high definition. So as soon as that became available, straight onto Pirate Bay and yeah, just got hammered. Which was actually pretty good because, I mean, we lost a lot of money from it, but it did get a lot of eyeballs on our movie, which you know maybe people wouldn't have seen it. And I think for your first film, it's really important to get a lot of exposure. So it was, uh, it was pretty good there. 
And that, that feeds into, a, I guess, a broader discussion about the release window strategy or the release window policy in Australia and Australian film. Liz, do you think it's it's time to say goodbye to release windows and we're moving more and more towards day and date? Uh, yeah. Yes, I do. Are there any benefits for keeping the window? Um, no. Nothing? <laughs> that's, that's fairly Pretty clear. Pretty much. Yeah. I don't think so. I mean, I think I think the... Theatrical window of f even five years ago when Animal Kingdom was released, or um, I think it was five years, um, it, it doesn't exist anymore. It just does not exist. And and the more the, the 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 sort of collusion of all of those platforms working together um, can make us money and and make us an audience. I think. The hardest challenge we have now is also is, is, is those platforms talking to each other. Um, and it's really interesting that Paramount's just done that deal with AMC Theatres in the US where they've reduced the window to 15 days. Um, so I think that it is by, by necessity moving into uh, a place whereby you have... I don't think you'll ever... I, I always want to make films for cinema because I, I do believe in cinemas um, and, and the cinema experience. Um, I just think that it has to – there are so many other ways of also seeing, seeing a film or a program now that you have to be um, realistic about exploiting those areas. We have time for some uh, audience questions uh, now. If you'd like to ask a question, uh, put your hand up and someone will bring a microphone to you. Anyone somewhere around the, the middle and middle-ish area? A question for Liz. Um, how, how did you get Animal Kingdom uh, premiere in Sundance? Did, did you um, did you really have to work hard for it to get the international agent for that, or did you get invited? Uh, yeah, we we were invited. Um, David's film Crossbow actually was went to Sundance and. Um, the programmers really loved that short, um, and it was actually it was introduced by a friend, Kath of mine's bird, um, Running Water, actually sort of got that selected in a way. So having a short film previously at Sundance certainly helped, um, but they saw, uh, I think they pretty well saw the finished film, um, and we were selected on that basis, but. There was a bit of they, they liked David and I, and often with festivals with Cannes the same Berlin the same um, they like to have they like the relationship with the filmmaker there's a sense of ownership that they like to to kind of um, to um, to program by so yeah in David's case he he had been he had a, had a short there before another question a couple of rows behind. Hi, I'm Annie. Question for Kath. Kath loved the music in Reuben Guthrie, um, Art for Science, opened it, and uh, Sarah Blasco with that, um, I don't know what it's called, but Don't Stop Me, I'm Halfway to Heaven. thought that was wonderful. Could you talk about the music and getting the original music and then um, also like Art for Earth versus Science? Yeah, um, Sarah Sarah is um, is quite good friends with Brendan and he had been in Hamlet um, at the Opera House and she'd 
she'd done the music for that and they'd sort of become friends out of that. And um, he, uh, so he asked her if she would do the score for the film and she'd never done one before and so she was quite keen to do that. So that's how that happened. Um, and with Art versus Science, uh, we we were looking for a, a, a sort of, you know, bar- a party track to have at the beginning of the film and a few different people suggested them to compose a track and so we we were just kind of googling their music and came across that track that, that we used the Palais Vue Francais so we just tried that in the edit and then we got them to come and see a, a cut of the film to say you know could you compose something for us or do you have something else that might work and they were like well that's working pretty good and uh, so they went away and then just did a little bit of a remix on on that song for us and and kind of cut it to the um, pictures. So yeah, it was it was a um, a really nice collaboration. Liz, you said you were making a new project with David at the moment. Could you tell us a bit about it? Also, does it get easier with each new project with the director uh, as you continue to work with them? Yeah, I think because you know each other's foibles, so you know each other's vulnerabilities and annoyances. So, um, yeah, we, we yes, we we we've got uh, we're David's David's off doing a Plan B film at the moment with Brad Pitt. Um, he he and Luke Davies are co-writing a feature film, um, and we've optioned a Paul Barry book, and you can all go look up Paul Barry and work it out. <laughs> and will that be made in Australia? Uh, partly. It'll definitely have international uh, shoot elements, though. Luke wrote us a piece on Friday um, for The Guardian about uh, kind of nurturing and keeping talent in Australia. For all three of you, I suppose, does, does that really matter once someone's made one of these great first films or should we let them f- make their films wherever they want to? No, I think I think it's really important. I think we have a big talent drain in this country and... Um, and, and, and we need to be encouraging the emerging sector as well um, for, for that very reason that we, we constantly... We, we do television at Porchlight Films and, and we're constantly looking for writers and um, it is... I, I was really pleased that David wanted to make The Rover in Australia and he was offered a you know mountain of scripts after Animal Kingdom um, and I will hope, you know, he'll come back and do other, other films here. I think it's really important. You, you don't want to lose people um, necessarily forever. But at the same time, I have a bit of a borderless view of Australia and I think that we need to be interacting with the world more and more. Um, and, f- you know, that talent can go both ways. Yeah, I mean, I haven't experienced that so much with the directors that I've worked with, but I think definitely with actors, it's it's um, it, it's a bit of a problem for us. Um, but yeah, I personally haven't experienced someone like going uh, away. They're still here. And I definitely reckon we need more Australian content getting made. I think we've got so many talented actors and crew over here that, yeah, it's it's sort of silly not to be making them in Australia, but I sort of agree with that it is, you know, we do live in a very sort of global age and it does really go both ways. Hey, Tristan. 
What advice do you have for unemployed screen and media graduates? <laughs> Dude, I would get a job. I'd get a job first, something that pays pretty well, and then just keep doing what you love doing on the side. Uh, I've got some advice, actually, as a, as a, uh, a film critic. Uh, the Guardian has a masterclass, actually, on uh, those who want to learn more about uh, developing and distributing a, a feature film. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's a half-day masterclass, so that's very, very relevant. Uh, you can check the website for details. Uh, could you please uh, thank uh, these three wonderful people for coming? Next month, uh, we're taking the show on the road, and the film club is going to Melbourne uh, for Kenny and a, a conversation about Australian comedy. So feel free to fly on down if you can. Um, and uh, thanks again for coming. For more great downloads, head to theguardian.com slash audio.